This episode of Equity is presented by MetaLab. MetaLab designs and builds products for companies that are expecting massive growth. Slack, YouTube, and Uber are just a few of the startups that hired MetaLab on their way to becoming household names. They're the product agency that helped design the original version of Slack and the YouTube player that is still in use today. Last year, MetaLab collaborated with the founding teams at Neuralink and Pitch. Unlike a lot of other agencies, MetaLab doesn't claim to be full service. They do one thing and they do it really well, and that's digital products. If you're ready to build a product for millions of people, then visit metalab.com. Tell them TechCrunch Equity sent you. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by the whole crew. We're all here. Natasha Moskaranis, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I read about deepfakes before I read my email this morning. So I am in the perfect headspace to record a podcast and not be worried about the future of our world. Also, you get seven points for reading email in the morning. I haven't read email yet today <laughs> and it's a bad thing. Danny Crichton, you're here as well. How are you? I'm doing all right. My food delivery hasn't gone here, so I'm a little ornery, but I, I have done my email. I'm down to almost only 50 emails left. Wow, that's not bad. I've got 350, so we'll see how that goes. But everyone, it has been a packed, packed, packed week. There has been so much stuff. We left the cutting room floor littered with good stuff, but we have reserved and boiled down just the most important things for you. We're going to kick off with a little bit of last minute news. We're going to talk about capital as a service, kind of circling back to the revenue-based financing conversation. A lot on the IPO market because many things have been happening. We're going to dig into the new Instacart round, a couple of international grocery delivery rounds as well. And we're going to wrap up with what may be a terrifying conversation about surreal and deep fakes and why $3 million is enough to upend all of Hollywood, it turns out. But we're going to kick off with the news that broke on Thursday morning, which is that Square is buying Tidal. Natasha, I'm curious, does Tidal have any mindshare amongst the younger millennials? Yeah, I think that that was a service that people think about. I mean, it's a, it's a name that everyone knows, so it's sure. more than a lot of companies. When I saw the news, it was like one of those news items where you like aren't sure if people are memeing you. Mm-hmm. So like I saw a couple jokes and I saw like someone's interested in Pandora and then I read your article and I understood. So the deal is for $297 million in stock and cash, it installs Jay-Z onto Square's board. So this is not just them buying some users, they're buying the whole company majority stake thereof and bringing the former owner of title onto their board. They're also, according to billboard.com, going to leave some equity for the artists who partnered with title back in the day. So they're keeping that collection of people kind of associated with title under the ages of Square, if you will. People were mocking this quite a lot, but I think there's a couple of things to be said about the deal. It's only 0.2% of Square's current market cap. So it's a very inexpensive purchase. And given that Cash App has 36 million monthly actives as of the end of 2020, there's a lot of consumer mindshare there that might translate well over to the title world. Danny, what's the curmudgeonly take on this one? Why is it uh, Why is it foolish? I don't think there's a curmudgeonly take. I, I actually think it's much more centered on Jack Dorsey, right? So if you look at Twitter and what they're doing with subscription technologies, they're trying to create new infrastructure to allow artists and creatives to make money in a sustainable way. Now you're seeing this with Square buying title. I think there's actually like a connection between all these where there's really a revolution. I mean, Obviously, we've talked about NFTs. We're actually going to have an NFT-focused show, I believe, next week on Wednesday. And so there's that little niche of the world in media. But just broadly, I think a lot of people in tech are really concerned about the sustainability of creative talent going into the 2020s. And Jack has actually been one of the ones who's thought about this, I think, among the longest. I mean, he, he was thinking about this all the way back in the 2000s. 
let alone in the last 10 years. So I think this is a culmination of a lot of the work he's done. Makes sense. Square's stock price is up 262% since January last year. So up almost 3x against 44% of the NASDAQ as a benchmark there. So, you know, has the money to spend. Obviously, Square's a lot of user base. I think it's smart. Yep. I don't mind it at all. Tasha, you have a good point as well. At its core title is a music company that is extremely exclusive. And so exclusive to a lot of people kind of rings money signs. And so I think it makes sense for them to have a much stronger fintech component than it currently does. And as Danny kind of alluded to, if there is an NFT play happening here, I don't think it's hard for people to emotionally resonate with the idea of owning and supporting a music artist that is like a really cool application of actually owning like a second of a song in any way. So, I mean, we'll see how crazy they are because let's remember these aren't startups. This didn't happen just because NFTs blew up over the last three weeks. <laughs> so we might not see it for another another couple months, but the options are endless. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I want to say that's another positive thing is we used to always mock Twitter for not having a very fast product cadence, right? And Square, you know, has always been a better performing company than Twitter in the public markets. But also, I never thought of it as a company that was really out there crushing the next generation of product. Well, with Twitter's super follow, subscription, spaces, all the stuff they're doing, it feels pretty active and fun. And over here on the Square side, we certainly have a lot of other activity and potential. So points to Jack for realizing that product is cool and you can do more of it if you have a lot of money. And they do. Let's put that aside and let's talk about capital as a service. Natasha, last year, we spent a lot of time talking about revenue-based financing and that kind of wave of things at the kickoff of 2020. What has happened and why are we back to this issue here in March of 2021? ClearBank, which is a startup coming out of Toronto, invests in startups with non-dilutive capital. It's branding itself as an anti-VC, but at its core, it's just another fintech company that's giving loans based on ad spend and positive unit economics. On Friday, they announced that they have raised rolling capital $10 million to start investing in companies that are kind of younger on the timescale. Before, they were kind of looking for a specific scale, those two factors I told you before. Now they just need the business to be hitting 1000 a month in revenue baseline. And then you can give the loan and then pay 2% back through revenue share over 48 months. The takeaway here, if for people who maybe don't care to use that product just yet, is that it's another example of revenue-based financing versus venture capital, which we all know is inaccessible to most companies. What's fun about this is, if I recall the, the nuance, is that this is aimed at much smaller businesses. So this is not kind of ClearBank's traditional target market, if you will. This is for companies that are doing a modicum of revenue, but they should have some potential. So is, is ClearBank taking on more risk by doing this? Yeah, I actually asked one of the co-founders, Andrew D'Souza, like what happens if a company doesn't make a thousand a month in revenue after they get a ClearBank loan? And they were like, that's the risk we're willing to take. Like we're not doing our job right if we're giving someone capital and it makes no difference on the amount of money they give. That's why I think it works for some founders better. Instead of trying to give up ownership for an idea, can we kind of come to an agreement with another company and face a different kind of trajectory of growth? the last note I wanted to say, and I was wondering your guys' takes too, is like this news broke days before Indie VC announced it was closing down. What were your guys' takes? Oh, I, I was just disappointed about Indie. I liked the countercultural model of pursuing profitability at earlier stages. I thought it was a fun kind of antithesis to what we traditionally see, but I never spent enough time looking into it, to be totally honest. I think there's a divergence between what makes money from an LP perspective and the return profile of these sorts of deals versus you know the fees revenue that ClearBank is looking to make. This model does not work, in my view, from a VC perspective. There's no high returns. Without ownership, you don't actually have those massive exits. You don't have those multi-billion dollar returns that we've seen with some of these IPOs. So there's no real way to like get massive returns. I mean, one way you could do it is if literally there's tens of thousands of companies that give you 20% IRR, you know, year over year, 
there's a way to build out a return profile that just doesn't seem to be existing here. It's a small market. It's niche. There's no like winner, so to speak. It's mostly a risk management kind of solution to avoid loss on some of these loans and just try to squeeze out some dollars. So like to me, like it never made sense from an LP perspective, which is why I think, I mean, Bryce, who was the founder, Bryce Roberts of NDVC, essentially said like, we try to raise money from LPs and no LPs were willing to accept this because they don't believe in the model. I think they know the model and just don't see the way to make money when you're not giving kind of dilutive capital. <laughs> it's not that we don't understand it. It's that we understand it all too well. Right. <laughs> and, you exactly. know, Jason Calacanis, who finally followed me on Twitter, which probably means something um he actually responded to my tweet about it because i i said it was a warning sign to early stage founders and he said you are wrong it is not and he basically said if you can't raise capital right now and are betting on revenue-based financing you probably aren't a venture backable company which i thought i would throw out here as like a thing that i i appreciate the context but i would love to know like if you guys think it's a warning sign for early stage founders or if it's a warning sign for early stage startups trying to do revenue-based financing or bet on startups that are maybe on a slower bootstrapped growth trajectory. In much the way that there's a divergence on the capital side between like, you know, the big return massive funds model of VC versus like, we'll make a couple of percentage points year after year, like real estate. <laughs> I think the same thing is true for a lot of founders. I mean, the, the reality is if you don't blitz scale, you don't go up on the 7x, 7x, 10x revenue growth, like a hop in or some of the companies we've been talking about, it quickly becomes infeasible for you to actually raise capital. It does not make sense to deploy $10 million in a seed round in a company that's not going to produce five, six, seven X worth of revenue. And so I think for a lot of founders, the beauty of IndieVC was it was sort of this alternative for founders who are like, I want to grow 10, 20% right. in the next 20 years. Right. And I'm okay with like a nice sustainable kind of growth approach. But sustainable growth and, and slow sustainable growth is really what we're getting at. Doesn't work if you're trying to make money and try to make money fast. That's as simple as it comes down to. I want to point out that Hoppin, which we're not going to talk about at length that the show, did announce the round that Danny helped break the other week. They raised $400 million at a $5.65 billion valuation. And back to Danny's point about growth, I talked to Johnny, the founder and CEO over there, and they're now at $70 million ARR. They were at $20 million last November. They bought StreamYard, which at 27 and now they're up to 70 aggregate. Holy crap. I hate to be obnoxious. I, we don't know the numbers. How many companies did ClearBank back? 4,000. And they've rejected 50,000. And they've backed 4,000. Here's an open question. 50 million ARR aggregate new to Hoppin in the last year. What was the aggregate new revenue of all 4,000 of those companies combined in the last year? One, that's rude. And two, it was, it was, it was, much, it was much less <laughs> than a rude. year. It's, it's a different goal, questions. though. Yeah, it's a different question. goal, that's I would it. say. The businesses are so different. That's precisely the challenge, I think, in startups is that, like, look, there's a couple of winners. Those winners aggregate so much money, so much capital. They become worth $100 billion. We're going to talk about some public market companies coming right up. But like within just a couple of years, they're worth $10 billion, $20 billion, $50 billion bucks. Compare that to this market, it's penny stocks. Yeah, but flip it around. I mean, like the ClearBank is the aggregation point for all of these individual loans that cut up to material returns and therefore make ClearBank itself interesting. Yeah. I don't think anyone's trying to argue that these 4,000 businesses that ClearBank did invest into are going to be, quote, quote, venture backable. They're not by definition, which is probably why they're going to ClearBank instead. Yeah. The question is, is ClearBank venture backable? And can it, as that company, bring a lot of other companies up with it by providing capital that would otherwise be inaccessible? So I think we're all probably agreeing while we're all giving each other glary eyes on the, uh, on the Zoom. <laughs> Michelle and Andrew, feel free to throw us your revenue numbers or profitability. <laughs> Let's move on and talk about some IPOs. Oscar Health. 
did its thing. <laughs> Alex, take us through it. <laughs> All right. So I got in a little bit of trouble for covering this company because we had some I knew you hit. would. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just waiting for them to email me. I was like, this headline is going to generate some emails. Anyways, Oscar Health priced its IPO at $39 a share. Fully diluted valuation of nine and a half billion. I think the simple was like 7.9 or something like that. So a kajillion dollars, essentially. And it actually priced above its raised guidance. It has since struggled. It's down to about $34 a share, if I recall correctly. So not the world's best post-IPO performance, but an enormous return for a lot of folks. Thrive Capital, Founders Fund, Formation 8, Capital G, Fidelity, Alphabet, Coatu, Tiger Global, and others. It had been private for a long time. What is it? It's kind of like D to C consumer health insurance with a focus on the ACA here in America. And what all that means is they just sold health insurance to folks. What I didn't get is why it's worth anything, because it's gotten consistently larger in terms of its member pool. Its uh, gap revenue fell last year and uh, loses a ton of money. If you look at its kind of insurance economics, it pays out more money than it brings in in premiums. So to me, it's like an experiment that didn't quite take. And yet it priced at $39 a share and tripled its last private valuation that we're aware of. So I was perplexed, Danny. I was curious if you know anything about the company and had an explanation as to why it priced so high. Well, I don't want to be Oscar the Grouch, which is a role I usually take on the show. I mean, Oscar had a very specific business model early on. If you remember in the Obamacare model, you have to have statewide health insurance pools. And the way you make money is you draw a healthy customer into the front door with lower prices. And you can't prevent people from joining your insurance pool. That's what these exchanges are all for. So you can't literally stop anyone from joining, but you can do a lot around advertising to make sure that the right people kind of know that you exist, the wrong people do not. And there's sort of a filtration message. So in the early days, like in Oscar Health, if you were in New York City, like West 4th Street and West Village was plastered in Oscar Health hats because it was NYU students. It was a bunch of young folks, the people you want in an insurance pool. They weren't advertising in a lot of other subway stations that didn't have the right kind of folks. I think that's still the model. I think the challenge with any sort of health insurance company in the United States is like health insurance is heavily regulated. It's heavily controlled by the federal government. It seems inevitable that more changes are going to come in the coming years in this model. And the company has just struggled, I think, a long period of time to to make action here. I mean, we've seen a lot of action in the insurance space in the last couple of weeks, yeah. even. So just today, Hippo Insurance is spacking for $5 billion total valuation. And we've also seen Lemonade in the rent insurance space. We've seen Metro Mile and, and you know, a whole long list. I think there's a lot of other insurance areas that are better than health for getting returns. So I actually thought it was pretty good. My conclusion to all that is for health insurance, I actually think it's pretty good. That's like saying for a person who has no legs and is currently bleeding out of two stumps, you're quite healthy. But Natasha, that, that would you. be someone that they would not want in the insurance pool. The point I'm going to make, which maybe isn't as relevant now, is just they have not been able to make actually sustainable customer growth. They have the same amount of users in New York that they had in 2014. And so they don't have the usual, okay, we have losses, but at least we have growth in these specific areas that I at least look for when trying to make sense of insure tech companies. You know, this is one of the big challenges in health insurance, right? It's a fixed market. The hope, I think, is that in established mature markets, people who already have the health insurance don't need to be re-advertised to. Let's say Oscar Health delivers a high-quality product. It's super easy to use. Next year on the exchange, you're going to choose it again, and they don't have to re-advertise you to kind of win that customer again. So your costs go down. I think a huge part of the question is, is there's still states to grow, right? Uh, health insurance is regulated at the state level. I don't believe Oscar is in all 50 states. So, I mean, a huge part of the magic here is can they expand to more states, get more customers, get regulated in more locations, offer more plans, get more people on board. But the technology layer stays the same, right? That's where the leverage comes in the business. Is it convincing? I don't know. But talking about software leverage, okay, Alex is getting angry because I'm already moving on. Alex, yeah, no, I, get, your, you get it off your chest. We can't go to InsureTech and not let me do my thing. 
Uh, oh yes, I, what was the point you wanted to make? Because I, I care about this so much. I wanted to point out that I should have been less surprised that Oscar House share price dipped after it went public because we have seen a decline in the value of a couple of other insurtech companies that have gone public recently, including Metromile, including Lemonade, and including Root. And this is interesting because it seems to be a, a change in the wind about public market sentiment regarding the neo-insurance market, and that could impact startup investment because Hippo's SPAC feels very much like two months ago sentiment happening now when things seem a bit dicier for the category. Also in this category, we saw Next Insurance just pick up AP and Tego to create some sort of new thing. I'm talking to them later, but the activity is massive. And so I think that the test here that Natasha posited about Oscar Health and the result we've seen thus far isn't that encouraging for the startups that are still being so active. You know, talking about the new insurance market, I, I think the biggest challenge is you have three buckets of investors who are all struggling to evaluate these companies. On one hand, you have these consumer marketing centric D2C investors who are like, these are consumer brands, right? They're advertised like consumer brands that use online advertising mm -hmm. in sort of a modern consumer brand way. So you evaluate it from that. You have old insurance hands who are analyzing it like they're insurance companies, ultimately they're insurance who don't actually see the leverage that comes from these new models. And then you have the general fintech investors who are also applying their methodologies who don't realize that insurance is an entirely different beast. Now that we have a bunch of folks on the market, I think if you give it two more years, they're all going to start to cut to the middle of like, okay, here's how to really evaluate and see these stocks. Think of like SaaS six, seven years ago. I was going to say like fintech. I was talking to a founder who's doing auto insurance. He was like, everyone's looking at fintech, but no one's looking at insurtech. And that is the underexplored area. I mean, we're seeing now why no one's looking at it compared to fintech. But I think this might be like the early growing pains that the category needs, Danny, to your point. All right. Let's put that aside, even though I adore the topic. And let's talk about Compass. Now, we were prepping about the show today and we were discussing the difference between Compass and Open Door. Natasha, you were curious about the distinction between the two of them or if they were the same, right? I knew that they were different, but I know Open Door went public through a SPAC few months ago. Yeah. So I wanted to ask Danny to throw some comparisons and, and tell me what the difference is. Compass is a technology enabled brokerage. So in some ways, it's way less interesting than Open Door, right? Open Door started with the model of, hey, click a button and your home is sold. Ta-da. Compass is not in any way that kind of innovative. It's designed right. to provide software tools for traditional brokers of real estate agents who spy and sell homes. They work on both sides. You know, it's designed to make their work more efficient, right? So if you're a real estate agent and you have 30 homes for sale, how do you manage the inventory around that? How do you manage leads? How do you get them into the platform? How do you share leads across real estate agents? These are a lot of very simple problems that, you know, every brokerage, think like Century 21, big name nationwide brokerages have struggled with. They just aren't technology backed. A lot of it is still paper and phone driven. So Compass was designed to add technology. They announced they filed their S1 this week for an IPO, 3.7 billion in revenue, still having a net loss of 270 million bucks. Now, that revenue is mostly commissions for their agents. It's actually one of the highest revenue companies we've seen coming out in the IPO market in a while, but all that goes back as commissions to their agents. So one of the challenges I think in this business is there's no leverage, right? They make almost no money per transaction because any agent who is selling homes can literally leave Compass, go somewhere else and make their 3% just as they always did on all those different transactions. So the big question and where it comes to open door is in the long run, uh, Compass now represents 4% of all real estate transactions in the residential market in the United States, 4%. If they were to own 10 or 20%, do you get to a point where the open door model, where open door started with, hey, instantly sell homes? Well, Compass actually can do that because they actually have the data, they actually have the real estate, they actually have all this infrastructure in place to be able to do that kind of one-click install. That's a much more compelling play, even though they're starting off on a, I don't want to say less ambitious, but more 
focused and more sass play like I think that what they're doing makes a lot more sense probably harder to pull off but like wouldn't it be easier to go up market once you have a strong loyal user base I think it's always a big question when you have disruption right this is a very legacy industry and so you have two options one is to say Evit, we're gonna 2.0 it we're gonna blow it up we're gonna start from scratch that's the open door model compass and by the way you know open door is an SF company and that's like the SF ethos Compass, which is a New York City-based company, was oh, like, God. all these agents exist. <laughs> like, you can't just blow up this old ancient industry because yeah. there's so many norms, there's so many pieces, parts, it's regulated, it's actually a lot of rules. And so Compass was like, let's just assume they're going to be here and let's just evolve what exists today into a better business. Now, ironically, it is a better business in some ways than Open Door. It has a lot of weaknesses <laughs> compared to Open Door. But one of the interesting things here, Alex, is uh, the owners of, of Compass. Yeah, which is a soft bank to a large degree. So what we're really seeing here is yet another kind of vision fund backed company go towards the public markets. And there have been a couple of notable successes in that area. I mean, guys, don't forget that DoorDash provided an enormous amount of return to the soft bank vision fund. So if we recall Danny's earlier discussion the other week about the kind of inverse J curve. Here's another example of what could be strong early returns for some major soft bank vision fund bets. Now, my question is, how do you value this thing? I, I don't really know. But I'm very curious to see how investors are going to approach that. And to be clear, it's not just the South Bank is the largest investor. They own a third. They own a really, really, really large chunk of this. So it, depending on the valuation and exactly where it ends up on the markets, this could be one of the most important South Bank Vision Fund companies going on right now. Absolutely. But one thing I, I want to keep in mind is that the $3.7 billion number really is not the way that I think about revenue at this company. Because they automatically kind of seed $3.06 billion of that, they really had like $714 million in kind of like what I would call net revenue. I know we're kind of threading between the gap here, but they also had $408 million in sales and marketing costs against that. That's a really high percentage for a company that's already this large. Uh, you know, it, it strikes me as a lack of leverage in the market. It's a slightly better percentage than it was in uh, in 2019, but it still feels very, very high. So I, I, uh, $270 million gap net loss, $155 million just EBITDA loss. It just feels kind of like a stinker. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, to their defense, the, the argument they would give you is that their agent growth has not gone up nearly as much as their transaction growth. So since 2018, they've gone from 27,000 annual transactions to 145,000. So I yeah. want to say like what, 6, 7x increase there. And more importantly, the amount of transaction volume, which is because of the commission structure, almost all revenues are based off transaction volume, essentially yeah. 2.5 to 3%, went from 34 billion to 152 billion in just a few years. So, I mean, the argument here is like they, they have not had to increase the number of agents as much in order to get this sort of 4 or 5x you know, revenue and, and transaction volume. So that's the argument for the leverage. I think there's huge questions there. And frankly, I, I really am going to be very curious how Wall Street evaluates this. But let's move on around the world to a whole different company, Coupang, one of the major South Korea success stories, probably the most successful company since Samsung in terms of technology, certainly in the last couple of years, is announced that it's going to raise $3.6 in its IPO at a potential valuation of $51 billion, pricing between $27 and $30 a share. This is a company that I've known for a long time, actually was founded by HBS grad Bong Kim, funded by New York City investors. You know, in the early years, it was actually really tough. I, I, if you recall, I used to be a foreign correspondent in South Korea in 2014 and 2015. It was an early company and, you know, there was an established e-commerce market. It was not like Amazon where there was nothing online. And Kupong just came in and said, we're just going to do everything better. Yep. And it sounds crazy, but it's like, you know, in Korea, because it's a smaller country, much more dense, deliveries were mostly next day, even back then. Wow. Kupong just changed everything to be faster. In Korea, in the last two years, there's been this notion of like what's called dawn deliveries. But a lot of deliveries are now between uh, 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. So you can actually get the item 
basically overnight for the next day. Awesome. And they've pioneered the logistics to make this happen. And so the company has gone and just grown spectacularly, even in the last two years. And I, I think it's going to turn out to be one of the biggest e-commerce success stories globally. That gives me so much hope for early stage startups whose only competitive advantage versus the really big companies is we're just going to be faster. I feel like sometimes it gets overcomplicated. Like, what are your 17 scientific reasons you're going to win past this company? And I might even be like someone who gets overly bearish on a company before I talk to them because I'm like, Amazon already exists. So it's cool to see now 11 years later them being potentially a huge IPO. And Alex, not only are they doing super well, but this is another rare example of a SoftBank Vision Fund company that's going on the up. Oh, for sure. This is going to be an enormous return. I mean, it's an example of how much a high burn model can turn around. Prepping today, I, I was rereading the S1 and I actually read it left to right and all of these columns are, are right to left. And so I'm like, this net loss is exploding. Oh no, it's going down. So <laughs> as a data point for everybody, they had about 4 billion in revenue in 2018 and they lost about 1.1 billion. So that's pretty aggressive. Then in 2019, 6.3 billion and a $700 million net loss. So both numbers going in the right direction. Then 2020, COVID hits, e-commerce goes crazy. They shoot up to 12 billion in revenue and their net loss falls to about, you know, 474 looks like. So it, it's a company moving in all the right directions. And so here's, here's a company that raised a lot of money from SoftBank, spent like hell, and is kind of starting to look like a winner. I mean, a, a company that can really generate a lot of cash flow. So I, I hate to say it, but this inverse J curve, Danny, is looking brilliant. Well, what's interesting is, A, SoftBank has made most of its money so far in delivery, right? So DoorDash <laughs> is, is all their large, you know, nine and a half billion, I believe, back to SoftBank on that <laughs> yeah. one. And it's also a major winner in Korea. So if you remember a couple of months ago, a delivery hero based out of Berlin bought Pedali Minjok, the local delivery company, for four billion bucks. So in Korea, in terms of large excess delivery, has been like the sector to invest in. And to get you a sense of this, Coupon's listing would be the fourth biggest by an Asian company on the U.S. exchange, with the largest since Alibaba's 2014 IPO of 25 billion. So again, Alibaba large e-commerce logistics delivery company. It's just the same theme again and again and again. Danny, are you telling me that there's been a big shift to e-commerce globally in the last 15 years? And it's generating outside That's why you subscribed to Equity, for that kind of deep... Deep analysis. <laughs> no, I give Danny a hard time, but the, the, the real point to make here is that Mash son, whose name I just destroyed, I'm very, very sorry, is the man who's made the most money off of human laziness, I think, in the history of mankind. <laughs> and that's very important. Moving on uh, from delivery, we're moving on to Instacart. Did you cut me off from my I transition? To do a different transition <laughs> when it says Alex transition in the well, document. To be Keep fair, this. that's after the Notice the how Natasha has said nothing this whole time. <laughs> this this <laughs> is what happens. You're getting Instacart. You're a lazy millennial. You, 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 you know how to <laughs> so use Instacart. So are you. I've never used Instacart, and that is my biggest flex when this pandemic is over. So I'm just going to pick it up where we left off, which yep. is that let's talk about another pandemic proven company, Instacart. They were on our show every week until they weren't. And then they came back this week. And I'm actually excited to like talk about this again. They raised $265 million at a $39 billion valuation. No kind of series number provided, which means that Instacart is officially in the world of late stage companies that has kind of lost track if they're like a series Z. <laughs> Or Q. <laughs> so uh, we don't know. But anyways, Jim, they... there's there's another three billion dollars in the account. Where did it come from? Oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> the good news for them, at least, is that the new valuation is double. It's seventeen point seven billion valuation when it last raised, which was in October twenty twenty. So we're seeing growth. We're seeing grocery delivery be something obviously not just for lazy millennials, but for a lot of people during this pandemic. And I don't think any of us were worried that Instacart was going to disappear overnight once people became more comfortable going to the grocery stores. But this is definitely proof that investors 
over agree with that idea. We've found that the revenue that they announced recently, I, I don't think it's how up to date this is this. This is an extremely recent, but it was about 1.5 billion in revenue. And what is not as Alex, you had the number from Coupon. I, I want to say it was 12. So we're talking about a $50 billion company that has 12 billion in revenue versus a $39 billion company with 1.5 billion in revenue. That's actually one of the crazy things about these markets is like the multiple difference in different geographies yeah. with different companies is wildly out of rack. It's it's a four to five X difference in the multiple itself. I want to point out that like we're seeing Instacart begin to look in other markets for growth. I mean, in our notes here, we point out that they're going to be broadening their offerings to include more same-day delivery of other stuff, which puts them in competition with GoPuff and Uber Eats and DoorDash to some degree and so forth. So I think we're kind of seeing a blurring of the line of what is X delivery versus what's just delivery that does also X, you know? And uh, I wonder what that's going to do to these companies' margins in the next couple of years as they run increasingly head-to-head because, you know, I-, I wouldn't bet against Instacart, but if you were like, all right, DoorDash versus Instacart, ugh, that's that's harder, you know? So it's, it's going to be fun to see. But Natasha, we also saw a group of other rounds around the world in the grocery delivery space. So can you walk us through who else put together some capital? We have three companies. Flink is a Berlin-based grocery delivery startup that claims to deliver groceries in less than 10 minutes. Crazy. Number two is Amsterdam's Crisp is an online-only supermarket. And then finally, a Czech startup, Rolik, raised $230 million to expand online grocery delivery across Europe. The comment you guys made three minutes ago has already aged well, which is like everyone's just making money off of delivery right now, and that is a very obvious bet. So this just adds to kind of the humor of the situation. The Flink round, the $52 million, is theoretically a seed round. Oh. I don't know what to do with that. The $30 million round for Amsterdam's Crisp is a Series B, but it's led by Target Global. I didn't know that was a thing. And then on Rolex case, its revenues were up 101% in its last fiscal year. And it's profitable. So there is actually evidence that you can make money off of grocery delivery. So each one of these brings a nuance to the uh, the overall story of the boom in e-commerce. One more postscript on this. Deliveroo, based out in London, announced today that it was going on to the London Stock Exchange, I believe, at around what? a $10 billion That's valuation what? this morning. Breaking news from a couple of hours ago. So delivery is everywhere. Every market, every stock exchange has their IPO coming up. Definitely stuff to pay attention to. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why we always have to cut things off the show because so much happens that we cannot bring it all to you. So uh, if you heard of TechCrunch.com, it has more news. And we are going to wrap very quickly with a little bit on Surreal, which raised some money. Danny, tell the people what is happening. Surreal is a Chinese company that raises seed of about two to three million bucks led by Sequoia China and GenFund. The CEO is focused on what they describe as Google Translate for videos. So the idea is to take existing videos with faces or people in them and essentially use a deep fake to transform those videos into something else. So inserting folks, taking folks out, and it's targeted at enterprise customers, which is a little bit different from a lot of the other deep fakes technology, which has been mostly targeted at consumers for fun, obviously using generative adversarial networks and mm-hmm. other AI technologies to actually make that work. What's nuts is if you actually look at it, and you should, I think we'll have it in the notes, but you should actually take a look at the products that Surreal is producing the videos are compelling. Like deep fakes are here. They're done. Like uh, there's maybe a 1% uncanny valley left. The sophistication here, the quality, the speed at which you can do this is immense. And I don't think we have the ethics figured out yet. No, not at all. But a couple things I want to point out about Surreal, because I'm always confused on how it actually works as a business versus just like a thing that has like alarm bells around it. <laughs> so users are charged per video or picture. It doesn't just animate faces. It's actually going to animate clothes and motions as well. And so far, it's had 10 million pictures and video orders on its website. And then finally, a use case that they shared. So Danny mentioned that it's selling to enterprises to kind of help limit some of the potential bad actor scenarios. One of those customers said that they used it to switch out the models they use for advertisements and switched out Asian models with Western models. 
to increase sales, which uh. I was like, why would you share that? But also it is an example of how people are using it in a way that they think is going to limit bad people from taking advantage of it. There's infinite stuff to talk about on here. To me, what's really interesting if you follow Hollywood is the ability to just create characters, right? We've seen this in voice with a bunch of folks trying to create original voices with brands being able to adapt voices to the individual customer. Imagine calling a call center and you're not actually talking to a real human. You're actually talking to a human intermediated voice product that it could actually address you in the kind of dialect or nuance or particular language you want advertising that's designed to target you by showing you exactly the kinds of folks that would compel you to buy. Sure. You add deep fakes, you add all this sort of synthetic media together. That is going to be the theme of the 2020s. Throw in there that I wouldn't even take it the advertising way. I would take it into the motion picture. You can now, with this technology, probably create much larger, longer, better films more easily. But we are dramatically over time. Ladies and gentlemen, Equity is back Monday morning. There's so much to talk about. We always go a little bit over. We apologize for that. But we hope you're doing well. Have a lovely weekend. Goodbye. Goodbye. 